Amen. Thanks, Bill. Um, I love just Bill's always like just subtly just slips things in there. If you want to help out with junior high ministry, if you feel the Lord calling you right now to junior high ministry, we love it. Honestly, we'd love to have a couple more of you all helping out with us in junior high. If you love Jesus, here's the qualifications. If you love Jesus and like junior high kids, that's it. The bar's there. Um, they are, I mean, junior high and high school, I, I think junior high especially, they seem so scary at a distance because they always make fun of you in the most accurate ways possible. Like, that's that's exactly the thing that I'm sensitive about. Thanks for bringing that one up. But once you get close to them, they are just the sweetest, most tender, amazing kids that are looking for love and acceptance. And that's, I mean, it's tough. I mean, you probably remember middle school. Anyway, that, that got me off of a different track. Um, we'd love to have you join us. It's just such a special time. Have you ever grown up with something that you thought was normal and then later on realize that you or your family was the only one that did that thing. I feel like this is just such a common life experience. I had one in high school. I still think, not in high school, in college, I, but I still think it's, it's pretty normal. So when I was in my sophomore year of college, uh, me and my friends, we moved and got our own house. I mean, sophomore year of college, you move off campus and it's a lot of new things. And so there was five of us living together at this house, um, sorry, five of us on the lease at the house. There's eight of us living together at the house. Um, and we just had the best time together. There was four of us in, in the room that I was in. There was one kid literally sleeping above the staircase. Uh, it was just amazing. I mean, it's, it's college, right? You just shove everyone in there. But in this sophomore year off campus, you had to start cooking for yourself. And so when I was cooking for myself, at first I lived off of Fruit Loops. I ate it about five meals a week and absolutely loved it. And then I started to feel like I was only eating Fruit Loops for five meals a week. It was just horrible. So I was like, okay, I gotta get more nutrition in my diet. What do I go back to? So for breakfast, this is what I grew up with. I would make a piece of sourdough toast, some jelly on it, and a couple fried eggs on top of it. And I thought this was great and normal and good. Some of you might be like, yeah, it is. Others might be like, that's disgusting. That was the reaction all of my seven roommates had. One by one, they were coming out, I was eating breakfast, and everyone reacted like, what are you doing, Luke? This is so gross. But for me, this was normal. This is just life. How many of you, I'm, I wanna get a gauge of this actually, how many of you think that that is gross? A couple fried eggs on top of jelly toast, about half, good. Thanks. There's more in half. Well, um, we'll pray for you. Those of you who had your hand up, the rest of us, thank you for being with me on that. It's just a good breakfast. Uh, but I think this is such, such a common experience. So I wanted to find a few more examples on this. So I went to the uh, famous online support group where people go to, to feel known and welcome. It's called Reddit, if you've heard of it. Uh, and I want to read to you just a few of them that I heard uh, from Reddit said, my parents had us drink the water we boiled corn in. Uh, when I told my friends at school I drink corn broth, they said, that's not a thing. And my parents had us drink it instead of normal water since it had some flavor and we didn't like plain water. That would be so awkward at school. Oh, I would love that. If one of my friends said that, I'd die. Uh, next one. For my entire life, I assumed eating the muffin paper was normal. No one told me it wasn't edible. 
So one day during a class field trip, we had muffins for breakfast, and my friend was clearing the table and asked me where my muffin wrapper was. Oh. And that's when it dawned on me and everyone else that I ate it. And I was made fun of for the entire trip. I mean, you got to. All right, this next one's from someone who grew up on a farm. He said, I thought peeing outside was normal. If you're outside playing and the urge strikes, there's only two rules of the household. One was to find a bush, and the second was to face away from the house so mama doesn't see it. But nobody told me that it was not okay to do this until I was on the playground the first day of kindergarten. Oh, that's tough. I mean, if you're a kindergarten teacher, I mean, you got to just expect that. I guess it's got to happen every time. All right, last one here. And this one, I think, is much worse than mine. It says, when I was younger, my mother and I used to eat onion and blackberry sandwiches. That's disgusting. And I didn't figure out this wasn't normal until a fifth grade sleepover with a couple friends. Imagine their surprise when I asked for an onion and blackberry sandwich as a late night snack. That's gross. Okay, show of hands. Is that worse than my breakfast? Yes, thank you. Okay. Is this a common experience? Have you had this before where later on in life you realize that, okay, what you did growing up wasn't normal? Like you think it's normal because this is just your family. It's a basic thing. I think this is a common experience. I think this is just kind of natural. I mean, this is life. We all grow up in a time and place and location, and this is basically just what culture is. So a culture is on a larger scale, that we all have these things, these rhythms, these patterns that we grew up with, that we're used to, that we think is normal and natural and good. And what I want to talk about today, and what I want to look at, is how all of this gets changed, shifted, or put into perspective by the person of Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to talk about this morning, it's really nothing new. It's more of a reminder, and it's nothing revolutionary. I want to just give you my main point right from the start, and we're going to unpack it. The main point is this, that our whole lives need to be surrendered to Jesus. That we allow every aspect of who we are, and even the things that we grew up with, to be surrendered over to Jesus. So we allow Jesus into the deepest parts of our lives, even the parts that have the deepest hold on us, which is often the things that we grew up with. All of us surrendered over to Jesus. And why I want to lead us into this, and us collectively, me first and foremost, is that, I mean, I just see this over and over again in the book of Acts. These are people who are allowing Jesus Christ, the living and reigning king, to change every aspect of their lives. Everything now has this Christ flavor to it, this Christ sense to it, that's all being changed, all being modified into the beautiful image of Jesus. And I want to look at one example of this together this morning. And that's going to be in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bible or your little uh, magical box called an iPhone, you can click away and open it up to Acts chapter 19. uh, And that's where we're going to be. And in this story, we see uh, the story of how the Holy Spirit moved in the church at Ephesus. How the Holy Spirit took something that was this deep 
whole, this normal practice in the lives of the Ephesians and changed and moved. And from that did some pretty incredible and powerful things. So what the church at Ephesus was experiencing, this hold, I'll say, over its life was not something that we experience today. It's not something that seems as common or normal in our worldview. It was a practice of sorcery. How many of you guys have interacted with a sorcerer recently? Anyone? Oh, no one. Wow, what a surprise. It's not common. This is not normal. I mean, yes, we do have these tarot card readers that we see kind of on the street signs. And yes, we do have kind of this new age spirituality with crystals and and the belief that the crystals are affecting the positive energy coming into your chakra. Like there are certain elements of this kind of magical or extra superstitious, but our culture by and large has done away with what is what we deem supernatural and have strived to live into a natural world. So when I talk about magic, I I remind myself and us that this is something that seems very foreign to us, but this was life for the Ephesians. Magic was everywhere. You needed to be practicing magic, or at least that was the thought if you grew up as an Ephesian in the first century. Because they believed that they were more open to, vulnerable to, or porous to the evil spirits of the world. The negative influences of the world were more likely to affect them. They could see demons or evil spirits coming and attacking them or possessing people or their friends. And this is often the cause they thought of illnesses, of malfortune, etc. All this stuff that was bad was coming from these negative evil forces that you were more open to, that you were more vulnerable to. And so you needed something to protect you from these evil forces. And this is where sorcery or magic came in. There was something that scholars called the Ephesian letters. They were six magical words or names used in spoken charms. So they thought by using these names or these words, there is power behind them and it would ward off the evil spirits. So there's power in name, power in words. And so I think it was daily or or regular ritual. I don't really know, but there's this regular rhythm of using these words at Ephesus to protect you, to protect your family, to provide for your family. You needed to have this to ward off the evil spirits. Are you with me? Does this make sense? Yes. These six words were connected to the great God of the city. Artemis. Artemis and Ephesus are synonymous. I mean, they were so close together. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman world at this time. It is a massive city. It's huge. And part of the reason why this city was so big was Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. Like, this is a massive temple. Everything in the lives of the Ephesians, in the lives of the city, revolved around Artemis, the great god of the city. And Artemis had around her neck, we believe, those six words or names. There's some statues that we have or have seen of Artemis, and around her neck are these amulets, which we believe had those six words or names. 
So it's thought that everything in the lives of the Ephesians, their practices, they were relying on Artemis to protect, to protect them from the evil spirits that were coming on them, to protect them in their economic life, to protect them in their religious life, to protect them in their social life, their family life, and, and on it goes. Magic was so big of a deal in the lives of the Ephesians, you could not go anywhere without seeing it or interacting with it. It was the water that they lived in, the air that they breathed. For us, the metaverse that we live in. But at some point, the gospel came in to this city. At some point, a new name came into the city. At some point, a new power came into the city. I came through the Apostle Paul, who is one of the main characters of the book of Acts. And Apostle Paul came in, and for two years, he came preaching and teaching in this city. For two years, he came teaching. And it was just a, a small group of people that were following Paul. And as he began to teach the word of Jesus Christ, the name above all names came in and it spread. It spread that the whole area around Ephesus had heard of the good news of Jesus within two years. But alongside of Paul's preaching, Paul was also performing miracles. Rather, God was performing miracles through Paul. And so powerful was this, that people would bring the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul to the sick and it would heal them. Something that had just touched Paul, they saw the connection of Paul with God, and so they would bring this article and have it touch whoever they wanted to heal, and the evil spirits were cast away too. So for two years, Paul was performing these great miracles, and for two years, Paul was teaching about the good news of Jesus Christ. But yet, we hear and learn that the church was still practicing sorcery. The church was still practicing doing these incantations and charms. There was something that was still having, having this hold over their lives that was hard to surrender. And I want to read to you or tell you this story. It's the story of Skiva and his seven sons. So what happened was there's these itinerant Jewish exorcists Oh, that's a mouthful right there. Itinerant Jewish exorcists. These Jews who were going around city to city and they were casting out demons and making a living from this. And they get to Ephesus and as they get to Ephesus, they try to undertake or invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, those who had evil spirits. So they saw that there was name in this power, name, sorry, I flipped that. There's power in this name, there it is, of Jesus the power that they've seen in Paul. And so they tried to use Jesus' name. And they go and try to cast out this demon. It says, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims to come out. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That's my best demon voice. That's pretty good though, isn't it? Thank you. I know, I did that to Brittany and she just is like, you, you shouldn't do that up front. But I did it. Sorry, Britt. Um, <laughs> that's how you know I'm not possessed because I don't sound scary at all. Um, so he says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And then the man whom, in whom the evil spirit leapt on them who were trying to exercise the demon, jumped on him, beat them up, and left them naked, running out of the house. I mean, that, that is quite the sight to see. I imagine that's just a horrible experience. Being undressed by a demon cannot be a pleasant time. This story spread throughout the region. Of course, everyone was talking about it. So it spread out. And what happened as a result of this is that people saw the power in the name of Jesus. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. By both Jews and Greeks, it was extolled. It was held in high honor. It was revered. It's incredible that this event sparked the fear of the Lord. And what happened with that is that it brought repentance at the church at Ephesus. The people who heard of this event, those who were part of that congregation, came confessing and divulging their practices. Because of this, they came and brought the things, these books that they had that contained all the spells, that contained the incantations, and they came confessing together. They gathered and confessed of what they had been doing. For two years, this church had still been relying on a power other than the name of Jesus. For two years. And it took an event like this to bring about confession and repentance. Now, I want to pause here and just ask us this question. What do we feel like has a deep hold over our lives? So what I see in this story is a couple things. One, just the radical grace and generosity and gentleness of God. For two years, he's gentle, leading these people to himself, but... And he's not forcing them into it, but he is calling them towards it. So I see the possibility of, of us holding on to things. I know this is true in my own life, that we need to give over and surrender to God. So that's the first question is, is there something in your own life that you can think of that you need to surrender over to Jesus? And the second question is, well, what do we do with that? What does this surrender look like? And this is where I want to read to you a story from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Any uh, C.S. Lewis fans in the audience? Let's go. Yes. He, is, uh, he was, I mean, since he passed away, but he was the Protestant Pope. Uh, just an amazing guy. He's a brilliant thinker. I love C.S. Lewis's um, literature because I think he has just an incredible way of capturing what is really real. But he puts it in this kind of fairy tale and it's myth. But the way that he tells these stories, it, it just grabs a feeling of, of my own heart that I think he captures some truth and can tell it in a profound way. So what I want to do is I want to tell you the story of Eustace Clarence Scrub. And he was such an annoying boy, he almost deserved the name that he had. And he was the type of kid that if you were at a sleepover, and it was 1201, and someone said, oh, we're going to go play wiffle ball tomorrow. And you go, actually, it's today. You know, that kind of kid. Yeah, it's just 
I know that kind of kid. Um, I want to tell you this story because this is a story of Eustace doing something really well. And it's just a beautiful story. So I'm going to have you sit back and just um, just enjoy. You know, I wish there was some popcorn for you. If someone wants to make a quick popcorn run, you can have at it. Um, so yeah, just sit back, take about five minutes and enjoy. This is Eustace. It says, I won't tell you how I became a, uh, a dragon till I can tell the others and get it all over. By the way, I didn't even know that it was a dragon till I heard you all using the word when I turned up here the other morning. I want to tell you how I stopped being one. Fire ahead, said Edmund. Well, last night I was more miserable than ever, and that beastly arm ring was hurting like anything. Is that all right now? asked Edmund. Eustace laughed, a different laugh from any Edmund had heard him give before and he slipped the bracelet easily off his arm. There it is, he said, and anyone who likes it can have it as far as I'm concerned. Well, as I say, I was lying awake and wondering what on earth would become of me. And then, but mind you, it may have been all a dream, I don't know. Go on, said Edmund, with considerable patience. Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of, of it, if you can understand. Well, it came up close to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know, now that you mention it. I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew that I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. And there was always this moonlight over and around the lion, wherever the lion went. So at last we came to the top of a mountain. I'd never seen the mountain before, and on the top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything you could want. In the middle of it, there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big, round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought, if I could get in there and bathe in it, that would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place and then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. 
But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, Oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, But I don't know if he spoke. You will have to let me undress you. Oh, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought I had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy-O, but it is just so fun to see it coming away. Oh, I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. And I didn't like that very much, for I was so tender underneath now that I had no skin. And he threw me into the water. Oh, it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they're no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? With his paws? asked Edmund. Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same that I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No. It wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Well, why not? Well, there are clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragged for another. What do you think it was then? asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. Aslan, said Eustace. I've heard that name mentioned several times since we began this journey. And I felt, oh, I don't know what, I felt like I hated it. But I was hating everything then. And by the way, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been pretty beastly. Oh, that's all right, said Edmund. Between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia. You were only an ass, but I was a traitor. That's where I like to stop the story. And um, yes, I did say ass, but C.S. Lewis said it so I can get away with it. So thank you. Have you guys ever felt like Eustace? When he says, oh, how many skins do I have to peel off? 
just another one. And you see Aslan in this story. He's there. He's waiting. He's waiting for Eustace to realize that he can't do this on his own. Oh, Eustace tried. Eustace wanted to go deep. But he needed Aslan to come and, and make the changes into his life. He needed Aslan to come in and bring his loving claws. And it, it does hurt. I mean, Eustace knew that it hurts and felt so tender afterwards. It's a feeling I'm sure we all know well as the Lord works in our own lives. But then it feels wonderful. Then we have new clothes to put on, new clothes to wear, new clothes to enjoy. C.S. Lewis will say that, I like to say that this is or from here on, Eustace was only ever a good boy, but this was just the start of his journey. For the most part, he was. And the days that he wasn't, I choose not to remember. Because what I see here, what I see in Acts and what I see around us, is just the loving goodness of a wonderful father. I like to ask the question, who else would we want to give ourselves over to? And we can't do this on our own. There's things in our lives that are still there, that the Father is inviting us to surrender to him because he is good, because you can trust him, because he is more powerful than any other name because he is more loving than any other person. He'll provide more security than anything else that we seek security from. Surrender. Let us surrender the deepest parts of who we are over to a loving God. Now let's flip back to the church at Ephesus. So what I want to end on is just us capturing a vision of what it looks like when a whole community surrenders over to Jesus. It's powerful and it's amazing. And I think this is in part what makes this story so special and so unique is just what happens when a whole community surrenders itself and has this common vision. So when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they're all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And the number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they had calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That's a, about a day's wage. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Because of this, because of this communal repentance, the word of the Lord spread and grew in power. When there's a group of people who are surrendering their lives over to Jesus, the deep parts of their lives, the church grows. The name of the Lord is exalted. It's so cool to witness as life change and cultural renewal happens. And you heard it 
in this story, they came and they burned the scrolls. I mean, this was a very dramatic turn from one way to another where they had burned the thing that they used to think would provide safety and security for them and now turned to the name and power of Jesus. The value of the scrolls here, um, what is it? I think it's about $7.5 million in today's age. Like that's a very dramatic thing. Um, If there's any high school or junior high kids, that's about 30 million chicken nuggets, um, the equivalent. Um, That's what I spent a good chunk of my time doing as I was prepping for the sermon, was calculating all the different things, how much $7.5 million was worth. You can fill, just this is a little fun fact, I'll throw it in there, 100 by 100 thing of like, let's say it's this little area here, 100 by 100, about two feet tall of chicken nuggets with that amount of money. That's pretty powerful. Anyway, I enjoyed that bit. None of you guys did, but I, I just, we'll, we'll keep going. So all I want to say is that when there is a community of people collectively surrendering this deep part of ourselves, it's going to be probably common between a lot of us, cultural renewal can happen. From this, they also started to no longer worship the idols that came from the temple, that came from Artemis' temple. And from that change of worship, the idol makers of that city then had and led a revolt because the Christians that were there. So there's this huge riot that happened in Ephesus and they all started chanting, great is Artemis, and on and on and on it would go, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And then they realized, like, why are we even here? But all of this happened, it all started because there is a group of people that allows the work of the living God to come and change their lives. So what I want to do here is I'm going to invite Bill up in just a minute. I want to just offer just a couple minutes of silence, of just reflection, just between you and the Lord. And you and him can just think together ponder and pray. Is there an area of your life that you feel like you need to surrender? Surrender into the hands of a loving God. Surrender into the hands of a God who cares for you, who is always there for you, who's going to seek your good and his faithfulness. So Bill, in just a few minutes, you can come up and lead us in communion.
and the community that puts Jesus in the center of their life and worship is a community that often comes to the table. And the table is symbolic. It represents the fellowship and the richness of followers of Jesus gathering around a table and reflecting at the end of dinner on the way Jesus led those early disciples the night before he was betrayed and crucified to take bread. And he took that bread and he tore it and said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. And he invited them to take it and to eat it, to take Jesus into the very being. And then after that supper, he took a cup, the glass of wine, and he, and he held it up and he said, this glass represents my blood, which will be shed for you. And it provides a new way of relating to God, not by our own effort and not by our own tearing our own skin and trying desperately over and over to do what we can't do, but to receive the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us and complete, complete, overwhelming forgiveness, the freshness of that pool that the undragon Eustace relished in. And so the table is symbolic, but it's very, very real. The, the presence and the work of Christ is very, very real. And so we go to the table and we participate. So the crucified life in Jesus leads us to a cruciform life in our own doings. He was pierced for our transgressions, which would enable him to come and, and remove that crusty, scaly old skin. So. As Luke has given us opportunity to reflect and to be quiet before the Lord and to think of ways that he wants to come in and free us as we surrender our lives to him. I want to invite you to the table and the little cups and then you peel off the little cracker which represents the body of Christ and then you flip it over and there's a little bit of juice which represents uh, the blood of Jesus. So use your imagination with this symbolism and enjoy this time with the Lord. We do it as a community. We do it together, both as individuals, but also all together because there's one table and there's one body, there's one spirit and there's one Lord. It's Jesus Christ. So bless you. This is how we end our service uh, around the table and reflecting near the ocean and with one another. So God bless you, Luke. Thank you so much. Um, your little demon voice was good. Use it at the Catalina Room. Okay? Keep doing it. That was good. And bless you all. It's so great to see you.